As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Once he's there anyway and in place, he'll have to have a voice on that because all footballing departments are reporting into him and that's a, that's a hugely important appointment to get right. Yeah, hello everybody once again and welcome to The View From The Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today, The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook. Now on today's show, we'll be finding out more about Scott Munn, taking a look at how uh, some of our loanees are getting on and picking a player from the mists of time, from yesteryear, um, who could save the season right now for Spurs. Um, let's start, though, with our new new chief football officer. You let me just get their voices on so you know that I'm not just um, pretending. Hello, Charlie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Very, very good indeed. How are Jack? How are you? Good, thank you. All set. Good. Great. Thank you. Listen, to talk about Scott Munn, who's been appointed to one of the upper echelons of the Spurs ever-shifting board members. To help answer the question of who he is, we've enlisted the help of Michael Lynch. And uh, Michael's a sports writer for the Melbourne Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. And of course, it's at Melbourne um, that Scott Munn made his name. Michael's been covering Australian sport for almost 25 years. This is what he's had to say on Scott. I've known Scott Munn, Spurs' new number two, since he entered football 13 years ago. He could best be described as a disruptor, someone who's not afraid of a daunting challenge. Start-ups and establishing new precedents are his thing, as he has demonstrated twice before when setting up new franchises for Australian sports' two biggest businesses, the AFL and NRL. Munn's introduction to football came in Australian Soccer's A-League, when he was appointed founding CEO of expansion franchise Melbourne Heart. Munn put together a team which hired former Dutch international John Van Schip as coach around a manifesto of playing sophisticated attacking football. Things really took off for Hart when the CFG, City Football Group, took over after a couple of lacklustre seasons. It was the CFG takeover that provided financial stability that that club had hitherto lacked and gave Munn the opportunity to show what he could do. He directed the creation of new football campus signed well-known names like Harry Kuehl and Tim Cahill. He also oversaw the policy which saw City become the dominant youth force, signing many of Australia's best young players. 
many of whom went on to play either for City first team or for other clubs. He was also a key figure when City launched its all-powerful women's team. They were the first to offer full-time professionalism to women. Mum was then eventually sent by the CFG to start up a new franchise in China. It is from there that he joined Spurs. Thank you very much there to Michael Lynch. I should make the point that Michael is both a Spurs fan and a View From The Lane listener. So thank you very much for getting in touch about that. Don't forget, you can also get in touch with us these days by simply going to our new email site, um, vftl at theathletic.com, vftl at theathletic.com. Of course, you can write your, your, your questions or you can put them on a voice note for us and maybe you'll get your voice onto the show. We've got some brilliant questions a bit later in the show. First of all, I must say this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I hope I'm not running your work down here, Charlie. Please forgive me. There's part of me that doesn't care who's in charge at Spurs. Um, I never knew the names of the of the officials who ran the club when they were successful. And I, it's a matter of some regret that these days I know the names of the number two at every major football club. And, they, you know, I could probably recite the career path of Sven Mislintat if pressed in, in a pub quiz, you know. I don't really care about these people, provided they appoint the one person that's important in all of this. And that's the new manager. But such is the way of the world. We need to know all about him. And you've done a great job. Very long piece in The Athletic, which I have read, Charlie. So some of these questions I know the answer to. What does this all mean? What does it all mean, the appointment of Scott Munn? Is it an important thing for Spurs? Well, first of all, I agree with you, Danny. And I said this earlier. I tweeted it after the piece. You know, ultimately, we do. We obsess over these behind the scenes appointments, things like that. But ultimately, get the head coach appointment right. And suddenly... You, the way you then talk about all these characters is very complimentary. Um, and if you don't get that right, they might do very similar things, but they are suddenly absolute idiots who can't do their job. Because really what it comes down to, what what we or most people who kind of follow football judge success on is our results good. And that's basically are the players good. And that question of are the players good is yes about who's brought in, but also mainly how well they're coached. So, you know, Liverpool were held up as best practice. They're so well aligned and their recruitment's so good. And isn't FSG amazing? That's fine. I'm sure they did lots of great things. But for me, you know, without wanting to sound too proper football manny, that was about getting an amazing head coach in and Jurgen Klopp. And then all of a sudden, if you're able to coach players who are good into very good, then the signings look amazing because we brought in Robertson and Vinaldum, etc. So I, I do definitely agree with you. And I, I know that it's very much a, a sort of construct of where we are in 2023 that fans are so knowledgeable and have such a voracious appetite for this information that we do know more about these sort of things than ever before. And and I remember feeling that like the jumping the shark moment came in 20, September 2021 when fans were singing Fabio Paratici's name when he got off the coach at Selhurst Park, Tottenham were top at the time and off the back of what was seen as a good transfer window. And I just thought, if ever you wanted, you know, football distilled, what it, what it is at this moment, this is it. The idea of cheering the director of football's name uh, you know, 20 or so years ago would have seemed ludicrous, but there we are. But that all being said, let's get deep into Scott Munn. Yeah, he comes in, new role, more or less Levy's number two. Paratigy or whoever's the director of football will be reporting into him. As with all the football departments, the idea is that he will, 
you know, be looking after everything from the academy to the women's team to the men's team. And yeah, he comes with some very good recommendations. I mean, for the piece, I spoke to various people who know him or have worked with him. And yeah, he seems like a very good operator doesn't have a massive ego and with a really wide knowledge. I mean, the point was made to me that, you know, I think it's been sort of held against him, the fact that he's never worked in Europe. The other way of looking at that is that he has a very wide global knowledge uh, in places like Australia and China where he's worked. And also the point was made to me a few times that CFG, uh, where he's come from, is very aligned. So he will have had a lot of access to the head guys at City. And as we know, City are held up as best practice. I know there's also question marks around the way they operate and they're helped by having bottomless funds, but... It's so easy to be best practice if you're owned by the UAE. Absolutely. All you need to to do is be owned by the royal family who sit on huge oil fields and, well, frankly, to stand accused of breaking lots of financial rules over the course of the last 15 years. And all of a sudden you get, you know, I mean, we've seen this a lot at Chelsea who've made lots of CFG appointments recently. People say, incredible best practice over at City Football Group. They're so clever. They're so clever. And I, I'm not, I don't doubt that the individual people employed there are clever or that, you know, Soriano and Brigistan know a bit about what they're doing. But obviously, you know, they, they're playing on easy mode. I'm wishing Scott Munn all the best and I don't know him. But let's be honest, there is an an angle in all this, Charlie, where you could say he was operating with the uh, City Football Group and um, out of that, we got Aaron Moy. That is the sum total of his achievements, um, despite the big money going in. In Munn's defence, there were other big teams. Like the women's team is a big legacy. I think they were the first professional um, women's team in Australia. They won the league three times and are credited with you know, the big uptick in women's football in Australia, which England found to their cost Tuesday night. I would say as well that the A-League is salary capped. So it was not a case, not that they won it while he was there, but it wasn't a case that, you know, they ploughed money in and suddenly became amazing. But clearly, yes, having CFG uh, influence helps and they were able to hoover up lots of the nation's young talent and that sort of thing. But I think uh, he also did, even pre-CFG, he imp- he appointed former Dutch international of school in the Ajax way who came in and made them play in this quite exciting fashion. Obviously, that's a big kind of issue at Tottenham, the side of play. Just Johnny Van Skip, yeah? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Who, who I don't remember. The, I mean, it was he was slightly before my time, but he's got a pretty impressive playing and coaching pedigree from what I was looking at. No, I think it was the classic, what we know, in that 4-3-3 that Ajax have always played, it was the classic wide, one of the front three. And a pretty good footballer, yeah. Very, very good. Yeah, We can go to the Athletic and read Charlie's piece. And I I absolutely um, insist that you do because um, it shows, once again, the depth of the stuff that goes on the Athletic. I don't work directly for the Athletic. I have no reason um, to advertise it, except to say it's a really good piece. The, the question that Spurs fans will be asking, and I know Charlie will be pawing the ground to answer this, does this advance or set on the back burner the search for a manager? Because that's all that matters at the moment. He's on guarding leave, I understand, Scott Munn. So if if he's going to have input in that, does he have to, do we have to wait to the start of June to start looking for, to, you know, getting a hold of this manager? No, well, I mean, he obviously, all things being equal, he will have a voice in this because of how senior his role is the question of how involved he can be before he officially starts on July the 1st I mean that's a slightly you know that's a tricky one to ask to answer for for various different reasons what we can say is do you remember Paratici he didn't officially start at Tottenham until July 1st either 
But he was very, very heavily involved in the managerial pursuit that ended, I think, on June 30th or 29th. It was one, one of, I think the 29th. It was the Tuesday when Nuno came in. So it was before he officially started. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and Don Fabio. He's not, you know, that's not, his remit is not to lead that search necessarily, but he will have to assume it, well, once he's there anyway and in place, he'll have to have a voice on that because all footballing departments are reporting into him and that's a that's a hugely important appointment to get right. So in Australia, there's a lot of uh, sort of excitement about Ange Postacoglu and saying, um, well, you know, we've got an Aussie guy in at the top. Could he do that? I mean, I think that's a, a, little, a little way off. But I do think that, that the appointment I mentioned at Melbourne, bring in someone exciting at least bodes fairly well. There's also been speculation, oh, well, what about company? He'll know him from City Football Group. But I think it's a little too early to say with all of that. I think the big questions for me on this are, one is, will he be able to improve the level of advice that Daniel Levy is getting? Because I don't think that Daniel Levy is getting good independent advice And I think you can see that from how bad so many of the football decisions that that Levy has made. And I I do wonder whether or not Munn will be able to come in and say, I'm sorry, Daniel, but I think the club has taken a series of wrong turnings over the last nine years, basically. And here here are my ideas on how how we might do it differently and better. I, I, I have no idea how those conversations will go. But I think if he's coming in, if he's really going to, make his presence felt at the football club I think that is that's what Tottenham need to be honest is somebody to come in and give Daniel Levy some frank independent advice the other question I've got is will he be able to set the and this might be where he's more useful will he be able to set the football strategy because at Tottenham there is no football strategy really like I know that Paratici's come in as managing director of football and over the last two years he's you know he's clearly had a big job but really Paratici's job is execution not it's not strategies he's a deal maker and he's a, I think he's a really good deal maker and he's done some great deals for Tottenham but he's not someone to say or I don't think that he comes in and says this is the sort of football club that we want to be so if this guy can come in and say this is what we want to be then that's really valuable and that is I mean yeah that's a really good point and that is part of the logic in the appointment that you know Paratici is not and yeah, I don't think it's necessarily his fault because he wouldn't necessarily claim to be this, but he's not going to be the guy and hasn't been the guy who's come in and aligned all the various departments, you know, from the academy and whatever. Uh, th- that is much more the idea behind this appointment. That, okay, Paratici, great at that sort of things, but we need someone who can link it all together and actually have an overall strategy and have a sense of how the various departments are joined up and link into one another and that's and you know whether they thought Paratici was going to be able to do that not sure but that has not been what he's done and that will be one of his legacies I think all right listen out of this comes a handbrake turn it's not even in the running order but I want to talk to you both about it look I'm possibly a person throwing stones in a glass house here those of you old enough who were ever uh, tried to get a job when I was running various magazines and, and other things, internet companies, will know that I often interviewed people three times. So determined was I to get the right person to do these jobs because jobs are very, very important. On the other hand, how is the manager search going? Because I cannot, I can't believe that we're still at the stage, you know, I know it's only been a couple of weeks, which by Spurs standards is a blink of time um, since, since Antonio Conte went. Every day now in the 
in the organs of the press that have to fill up, you know, get they have to fill up internet sites and television programs and indeed radio phone-ins. I hear that somebody has been highly considered by Spurs and somebody else is thought to be a really fit fit the bill. I mean, it literally changes every twelve hours. Twenty-four hours ago, it was Arna Slot, the Firenord manager. Now it's Vincent Company. What I mean is this just made up by our fellow journalists and broadcasters? And why they must have known Conte wasn't going to sign a contract, Jack. They must know who they want to be the manager. Um, and you know, and if if it if it turns out to be Julian Nagelsmann and he doesn't show any enthusiasm for the gig or the conversation right now, move on. They must have a list somewhere, surely, because at the moment, if you believe the press and the internets and the in the nose and all the rest of it, it's it, it's again, it's a kind of scattergun approach well i don't think they know exactly who they want to be manager yet but i do think they have a short list i agree with you that they've known that conte wasn't going to sign a new contract since i think i think really since the end of the world cup probably so they've already had well four months since then to where they should ought to have been able to get you know get a big head start on all their rivals it feels to me as if Chelsea who as we said on the pod the other week are fishing in exactly the same waters as Tottenham really are going to be able to kind of catch up with Tottenham's head start basically and mean that Tottenham have I think wasted their head start you know Spurs do have a bit of time it's still only the 13th of April there's another you know players won't be back in for pre-season for another two months two and a bit months so it's not like Spurs have got no time at all but I think, uh, you know, uh, clearly this is being run, as we said before, with incredible secrecy and privacy at Tottenham compared to 2021. You can tell that by based on the amount of information that came out in the, of the 2021 search compared to what, what's coming out now. And I do think the other factor here is Paratici. You know, everything is, you know, this process is continuing, this sort of due diligence set stage at the moment while Paratici is awaiting the results of his appeal, which is going to be heard next week. I think when we, if he gets off, I think he'll be straight back in the saddle for the what I imagine will be the interview stage will be coming around pretty quickly. But if he's out of the picture then I guess Daniel Levy will have to press on ahead by himself well not by himself but with other with, with other people who work underneath Paratici at Tottenham We should say as well this is the man hire does follow you know, Paratici brought in three pretty senior guys below him Gavanini, Scalding, and Steinson all last summer like as you know we do, we do criticise or Daniel Levy gets criticised a lot for you know, being the the only show in town and basically doing everything himself. Over the last couple of years with Prati, with those hires I mentioned and now Mun, there have there has been quite a few people coming in on the football operations side. You know, and, and people have their own view on whether those guys actually have uh, autonomy or not, but you know, they they are at least trying to move in what most would consider the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have to be honest about that. You're right. It, uh, the, the, their points got Mun and immediately... You know, you've got people saying, well, thankfully, that's Daniel Levy taking another step away from the day-to-day control of the levers. And then you get other people just saying, oh, so he's got another human shield to hide behind, has he? And you're not, you're never going to satisfy anybody. The managerial thing just bothers me because, because I'm scarred by what's happened, um, particularly in 2021. I know 2021 was clearly bruising for everyone. And that's why, to Jack's point, you know, that it does feel different. Clearly, Spurs are really don't want to get into that situation as they did last year, where it was so public that who was their top Well, we're having polls on, on, you know, Spurs stood one of the managers down. The Spurs fans, rather, stood one of the managers yeah. down in advance of him signing a contract. I it was know. nuts. I mean, but, but, but the end result of that was everyone knew that Nuno was, you know, whatever it was, 10th choice. And he was basically a lame duck 
from the start. But the but the thing is, not a lot has changed since we were talking last week or the week before and saying that, you know, for new managers, there are a couple of big things. One, the season hasn't finished and they want to wait, see the lie of the land then because there might be some other big jobs available. And two, as Jack's mentioned, the strategy situation still is unresolved. So they don't even know who the director of football they'll be working into is. Well, I, I, you know, all we can do with Scott Munn because we have no control over his appointment is to wish him the best of luck. And it may turn out and I say I'm walking very carefully on eggshells here, that somebody with limited hands-on experience of European football, but with wide experience of other markets, to use that terrible phrase, may be just the thing the club needs. We shall see. Before we get to the break, I want to talk about uh, Loan Watch, really. Some of the Spurs players are on loan, because as the new manager gets appointed, as we head towards the end of this season and the end of these loan periods, Spurs are going to suddenly have an influx of about it's, near, it's 11, isn't it? They've got 11 of their top players, uh, their full-time professionals are out on loan, many of whom still have years left on their contracts. And we'll see, they'll be coming back a bit, you know, the new manager will be, I mean, we won't be quite in Graham Potter's situation, but he will have a lot of people lined up saying, what about me? What about me? It was a brilliant game at the, uh, yesterday, a friendly match between Atletico Madrid and Besiktas. It was in aid of the Turkish relief appeal for the, the recent terrible earthquakes there. Interesting game. Sergio Reguillon and Matt Doherty both played wing-back for Atletico Madrid. Sergio and Matt turned out to be on the losing side. They lost uh, 2-0 to Besiktas, whose goalscorers were former Tottenham uh, stri- uh, forward Jensen Fernandez and former Tottenham forward George Kevin Nkudu. So Tottenham, Tottenham's unsuccessful buys spread their influence around the world. I love this tie because it's so Champions League group stage. Atletico Madrid against Besiktas. But I looked it up and actually they've only met the teams have met only in the Europa League before in 2012 in the uh, what looks like one of the knockout the probably the quarterfinals of the 2011-12 Europa League. And then I was thinking earlier, see if you can get this, players who've played for Besiktas and Atletico Madrid. I've come up with one. Oh god. I mean because because Turkish That's football really is hard. Turkish football is like a a, lo- a sort of spin dryer for football, isn't it? They come and go. Mm. I haven't got a clue. Go on, tell me. Simao. Ooh, wow. Wow. Well, that is very good, Jack, that you're doing all this level of research for a podcast. I didn't even have to cheat. Like, that genuinely came out of my head. Wow. I have since confirmed it on Wikipedia. Wow. Meanwhile, Tanguay and Dombley came on as a sub as Napoli lost 1-0 to Milan at the San Siro in their Champions League quarterfinal. Um, I don't suppose there's um, much to say about that. That is his he, That is his role. He, is, he comes on, by and large, to try and change games that Napoli are either dominating or... He could start the second behind. leg. You think so? Geese got sent off. Yes, he did. Of course, he did. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I actually don't know who would who. What other midfielders Napoli have got on the bench? But I wonder whether this could be a huge day for Undone Believers next week. Yeah. If, uh, if he runs the Imagine. game against Napoli into the Champions League oh, semi final, Charlie. And while while you were away, we did at one stage discuss what would it mean. This is when Conte was still in charge. If Tanky and Dombley was to win the Champions League. As I was, you know, they're in the right side wow. of the draw, Naples, aren't they? They could, yeah. they could easily make the final, um, even after that setback uh, yesterday. What you know, the, the Antonio Conte, I was, I was speculating on on what his face would look like if 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 Tanguy Ndombele is prancing around the pitch with the trophy above his head. That said, if Nap- if if Milan hold on to their one nil lead in the second leg in Naples, which they you know they've got a good chance of doing, mm-hmm. then they'd probably get into in the in the semis, and I think they you know they'll be. 
you I don't know if they've been narrow favourites, but that you can definitely see them going through. Then all of a sudden, we'd be we'd be rewriting history this season, saying, "Well, Tottenham actually did really well to hold Champions League finalists AC no, Milan to own, no, only a one nil aggregate defeat." We'd be saying Spurs were, should should have put that AC Milan team to it. bed, and they should be in the final. But that was what was so funny was when Spurs went out, and then the draw was as it was. It was suddenly like. On one hand, fans are saying this is the worst Spurs team ever and, you know, we're not even going to get finish eighth or something. But then all saying, but we actually could have been in the Champions League final if we'd actually just gone... Bothered you know, if we hadn't brought on um, Davidson Sanchez to try and win the game. Yeah, let's not relitigate that. <laughs> but also, if, if, Spurs ha- if Spurs had beaten Milan, then they'd have played Napoli and it would have been the Ndombele derby and that would have been amazing. Yeah, because in think UEFA think rules, pieces. I think lone players can play against parent clubs, right? Well, yeah, they you... can because Cancelo was eligible. Yeah. He came on, didn't he? But but presumably, is it not at the club's discretion? There's an agreement. You have to agree in advance, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. There was that famous Morientes one where he knocked Real Madrid out of the 2004 Champions League for Monaco. Yeah, and Courtois played for Atletico against Chelsea yeah. in the 2014 semis. That would have been an amazing tie. There's, I mean, I don't want to feel... There's no point in us just sitting around feeling sad about it now, but imagine if Tottenham-Napoli Champions League quarterfinal. Jesus. I know, I know. There is every point in sitting around feeling sad about it. And if the, if by sad you mean furious, <laughs> then yes. Yeah. And finally, let's get on to a player who, I, for no logical reason, I'm setting a great deal of store by and hoping, and that's Destiny Adoki, who's played a lot of minutes for Udinese this season. They, of course, Udinese are doing their planning in advance. They have this morning announced the sign of Jordan Zamura from, I think, Bournemouth, yes. And uh, he plays that left wing back position and he is uh, Dogie's uh, replacement when the season finishes. So far, Destiny, and of course, how great is a player called Destiny going to be? He has scored three goals, made three assists in Serie A. He was player of the month in February. While um, if you care to check out a lot of Italian websites, he was player of the month while people moaned that he can't defend to save his life. There's a lot of him, and there's a lot of it that reminds me of Danny Rose about the same same sort of stage of his development. Amazing engine, tremendous attacking instincts, and needs to be coached by somebody of where exactly just to stand to give yourself the best defensive chance. And we all know, Danny, that in the end, that was easily doable because he's got all the, the skill and the, and, the, and the running power and all the rest of it. The only other thing from for people at Experts is Eric Lamella coming out and um, talking wistfully about his time at Spurs. He, he he can't be kept away from microphones, Eric, about how much he loves playing for Spurs. And of course, Eric, the feeling's entirely mutual. Yeah, he's he's probably done more interviews with the Times than he had goals for Spurs in his last few seasons. I think he's done two in the last, uh, what would it be, 18 months or something. But I'm being facetious because it it's great to hear from him. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice interview that Tom Allnut's done with him where he talks about his brother and yeah his his time at Tottenham and a little bit about the uh, that incident with Martial which Spurs fans will remember when they won 6-1 at Old Trafford in behind in a behind closed doors game and then obviously they were reunited at Sevilla last summer and they come up against each other tonight but yeah I think he's pretty fondly remembered now the matter I mean I know he's divisive at the time but I mean we, one one is you know the, the thought that he it, it didn't overlap, but he and, and Christian Romero in the same team. And then we're moving to proper housing 11, aren't we? Absolutely. We'll have to open a housing department. We'll have to get a minister for housing. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane, everybody. I'm Danny Kelly. Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare from The Athletic are here with me as well. Remember, you can get in touch with us, as many of you have done, as you're about to hear in the next uh, few minutes, with our, our new email. We, we've entered the 20th, never mind the 21st century, with our new email uh, proposition. VFTL, beautiful name, VFTL at theathletic.com, VFTL at theathletic.com. We're happy to take voice notes as well, as you'll hear, um, and your questions otherwise. This is a lovely thing that happened, though. This came from uh, Jesse Strauss, who it turns out has an amazing job, and I'll read that in a second. This is what Jesse had to say. Hello, gents, at The View from the Lane. I'm here in Boston, USA, an avid Spurs supporter and an animation professor at Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Now, hang on, I think I've got a pretty good job. Um, I get to talk about football, have a laugh with people I like, and uh, hopefully entertain the public. But I'm not the animation professor at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Um, that looks like an absolutely sweet, sweet gig. Now, recently, um, Jesse goes on to say, I did something, uh, did some animating to preview an assignment for my class on working with audio. And I used a clip of Danny Kelly from the podcast as my source. Hope you receive it in the spirit of affection with which it was made. I love the podcast. Look forward to each new episode. Not sure where I stand on Poch coming back versus Nagelsmann or anyone else for that matter. So there's about a 10-second clip of something I was saying, of presumably very minor import uh, in the scheme of things. Um, but I'm an animated beaver, and I like it very much indeed. And we'll put it up on Twitter in the course of the next 24 hours with Jesse's permission. And Jesse signed himself off. Um, yours in Spurs fuel joy and frustration, Jesse Strauss. Um, he, then he puts a, a footnote because he's a professor, of course, professor of animation. He says, the character is a beaver for no reason other than my own personal liking of the animal. Cheers. 
Well, thank you, Jesse. I think that's a tremendous use of your time as a professor of animation, um, putting my voice to an animated beaver. Jesse, I know, I presume, of course, like all professors, you've got plenty of time on your hands. I, I'd like to see Charlie and Jack animated as well. Um, as other animals possibly. So let's look forward to those over the coming weeks. And we'll, we'll put, with Jesse's permission, I'll put it up on Twitter. Hopefully, we'll get some more animations. What animal would you want to be, Charlie? Ooh, that's a really good question. I don't know. Something like a fox, maybe? Or or, or go the sort of scale. I mean, I find animals like crocodiles amazingly compelling. I don't like sharks and crocodiles. They're really scary. Yeah. Ones I do. I, I do have quite a soft spot for. What about you, Jack? What animal do you want to be? Uh, I was quite like badgers. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Um, and of course, there used to be the old psychological test that people used to I'm, I'm not so sure that it came out of the University of Harvard. I suspect it came um, out of school playgrounds where you would ask someone, what is your favorite animal? What is your second favorite animal? What is your third favorite animal? And the answer was then you, they would put, write these down for you. And the f- your favorite animal is how you see yourself. Your second favorite animal is how others see you. And your third favourite animal is how you, how you actually are. And the only person that's ever worked with is my own mum. Bless her. She absolutely nailed it. We'll do that another time on another show when we're, perhaps we've got less to talk about. <laughs> I, personally speaking, of course, I think it's very hard to get past Brer Kangaroo. Um, I would love to be a kangaroo, not least because the thing I most envy about uh, about animals, and there are, there are many, many things I envy about them, um, is to animals with proper tails. And the king of tails is the kangaroo, a tail you can sit back on while you're watching the cricket. I mean, it's just too good, isn't it? You wander down to the local park, you know, you you, you have to ask some old gent, what's the score here? Four down, is it? Thank you. And then you lean back on your massive tail with your beer in your pouch. I mean, come on, that is some kind of animal to be, isn't it? Nice tribute to Scott Munn as well. <laughs> and Aaron Moy, yeah, they're all there, dude. They're all there. This is from Kevin Hodgson, a really interesting uh, question. Uh, if you could choose one Spurs player from yesteryear, uh, could be magically transported into the current team to save the season, who would it be? Now, I'll give you his own answer while you're uh, organising your own thoughts. Kevin's answer would be Ricky Villa. He said, a strong, highly skillful, creative, committed midfield gentleman, a few goals like the stunner against Watford in the FA Cup semi-final replay at Highbury of all places. As always, our mind does weird things. That goal was against Wolverhampton Wanderers. I know because I was there. Um, stood on the North Bank. I mean, what an extra... I mean, I've been... I used to go to Arsenal a lot as a kid. I'm from that part of the world. But stood on the North Bank... When Via got to, he got two that night, he, when he got the one from an adjacent postal district, I was thrown maybe forty feet down the down the banking. Quite incredible, absolutely. And it, I, just to complete this story, the first semi final, um, which went to a draw, had taken place. I don't know where it was. I can't remember. I'm suspecting somewhere like Villa Park, but I was in Mallorca with my football team, the old Queen's Head. What could possibly go wrong? And we were. Watching the game in a bar, and when it was that was a very difficult thing to do. And Spurs were winning two one late in the game, and the transmission ended. They obviously hadn't paid for the satellite time for the injury time. I spent the following twelve hours in an orgy of self congratulation and drinking as Spurs had made the FA Cup final, only to learn from the papers the next morning in Mallorca that Wolves had equalised uh, late on, and there was a replay. Flew back to London. We, I think we played our terrible match. We lost ten one, um, and it went to. I mean, it was. I could. I walked. Of course, I walked from my home uh, to Highbridge see Spurs win that semi-final. Nice to hear about a Ricky Villa goal that isn't the Ricky Villa Manchester yeah. City one. He got he got two that night, and the, the, one of them was an absolute brilliant shot from way out. 
to cause pandemonium in the ground. You can imagine, it's supposed, there's supposed to be a neutral ground for these FA Cup semi-finals. Playing in Highbury with Spurs playing, it was not a neutral ground, I can absolutely assure you. So Jack, reaching back, um, it doesn't have to, it could be from six weeks ago, it could be, who, who would you magically like to transport, Star Trek style, um, into the current Spurs team? The first answer that came to my head was Luka Modric, because Spurs, you know, it's obvious, that don't even need to explain why. No. Um, Gaza also popped up. I'm not sure how Gaza would, where would Gaza fit in the 3 4 3? Are we overthinking it? You are overthinking that other, a bit, yeah. The, and the one other name that can't be ignored is peak Gareth Bale. Like, I, I initially wasn't going to say Bale because I thought, well, you don't need a forward, do you? Because of Caden Son. But the fact is that peak Son and peak Bale, there's a bit of a gap. Peak Son this year and peak Bale, there's a huge gap, to be honest. And so, if you could have, if you could have Bale, I mean, he's such a human cheat code that he would—he's guarantee he can win games all by himself. Uh, but despite all of that, I'm going to go for Modric. Sorry, Gaza. What, what about you, Charlie? Yeah, similar lines. Given how I think their biggest weakness right now is the fact they're always overrun in midfield, and if they're going to insist on playing the system, then they need someone who can do the job of two players almost. And I think that would be Moussa Dembele. Yeah, I know. I know we lionize him and maybe kind of slightly overdo it with how good he was but he was for for a period you know we only we only need it for the rest of the season don't we so it's what eight games 2017 18 Moussa Dembele that kind of era he was so good yeah someone who could just pick up the ball from deep drive forward get Spurs going I think would make an enormous difference I haven't gone for a midfielder. I totally get why you both have in your own ways gone for people who you know, take team forward. Uh, and, this, and mine is just dripping with nostalgia as well. I'm going to go for peak fitness Ledley King. Um, I think part of, the, part of the problem with Spurs is that they they concede too easily. And so whatever their system is, they're constantly having to come from behind, which is a problem. Um, uh, you know, And they look like they're going to concede all the time. But also, of course, he can step into midfield with absolute alacrity. Indeed, I remember... When they reopened the national stadium at Wembley, the first game was an international against Brazil, and Ledley King started in midfield. He played in midfield, even though he was playing centre back for Spurs. I think he would stabilise the defence. I think his his speed would take away some of the problems I see them having, and a, absolutely a good enough player to make a third midfielder. All of us have picked players who kind of do two jobs which is the way I, mean, I guess football is going. And look at John Stones currently, um, exactly what, what they're doing there at Manchester City. Thank you for that question. That was great. The next one is even more convoluted in some ways. This is from Andrew White, who wants to talk about Spurs managerial candidates. Uh, I'm cheating in this as bands. I know you all love your music as well as football. And I wondered who would be the potential Spurs managers if they were, who would they be if they were bands or musical artists? Now he was thinking, he could put his, he said, I'm thinking Nagelsmann. Uh, would be Oasis. Um, first two albums, managerial jobs were great, very well received, and hailed as the next big thing. But the third album, uh, the job just didn't work out. And he's gone on to compare other possible managers as well. I did. We did get advance notice of this. So, who, who are you going for, Charlie? One thought I had was Brendan Rodgers, who we were asked about last week, and I was thinking he's in that space where he's seen as very naff. That even if you do quite like him. You can't really admit it, or I did admit it last week, but you know, you're you know you're gonna get a lot of abuse. I was thinking him, someone like you two, who I feel like are up there with the most guilty pleasury type of band. You know, you just would not want to admit you like you two. And I feel like Brendan Rogers uh has gone on a similar trajectory. 
having been, you know, before he got really big, so to speak, it probably would have been more acceptable in the same way as you too. But now you just, you can't really say it. Thank you very much indeed for that. What have you got, Jack? I was a bit surprised with Nagelsmann and Oasis because to me, the thing that stands out, stands out about Nagelsmann is how young he is. Like, so for Nagelsmann, I went for Justin Bieber. He's been around for a long time, but he is still really young. Like he's, I think Justin Bieber's 29, so only a few years younger than Nagelsmann. Also, you can see, uh, you can kind of see Justin Bieber like Nagelsmann on a, uh, on a skateboard. So <laughs> okay. that's as far as I got. Okay, well, I, um, I gave this some thought. And I'm, I mean, I notice a personal obsession now um, and I'm sorry because it did become personal. I couldn't think about future managers. I could only think about the most recent Spurs manager. And I was thinking about Antonio Conte as a band. And what it was is that, you know, he is clearly very good at what he does. And what he does is so very unenjoyable. And I was thinking uh, for a while, I got very interested almost as a social thing in death metal. And I was thinking about the death of big death metal bands because, of course, you can see why they're popular and equally, you can spend a little time thinking about it. But in the end, it's a personal thing. It just becomes grating. And so I was thinking about who were, you know, obviously the Norwegian death metal bands. But in the end, I, I, I settled on Cannibal Corpse because they've gone on for so long, the American death metal band. Now, for those of you who don't know Cannibal Corpse, they make a, a terrible racket. And it's all disgusting, the things they're singing about, as their name might suggest. Um, I'm going to read you the titles of the tracks from their second LP, butchered at birth because I think it, it, some of this is is watching Antonio Conti's Spurs. Now, I would have gone for their third album, which was sold a lot more copies, but the track titles are so disgusting that I can't read them out even on a podcast, right? So Cannibal Corp, second album, butchered at birth. Some of this is relating to the, the Spurs manager, purely in a metaphorical way, obviously, of recent memory. You know how sometimes you get an, al an album and you have to leave out a couple of the tracks because they're called things like oh, Roses in June? These are the actual tracks in running order. Meat Hook Sodomy, Gutted, Living Dissection, <laughs> Under the Rotted Flesh, Covered with Sores, Vomit the Soul, Butchered at Birth, Rancid Amputation, and Innards Decay. That reminds me, Danny, at school... Some of the kids got into uh, heavy metal, and there was a band called Corpse Vomit. Who they were? <laughs> the names are just the, the names are worth it, aren't they? Alone, absolutely. And it was if you when I, when I was doing the research for that research, um, <laughs> shut up, Danny. Um, just put just put into just put into a search engine best death metal bands, and the list of the first forty names alone is worth it. Yeah. Well, also I've I've just googled Corpse Vomit just to check that yeah. they hadn't made that up. They are an actual band, and they're. The top eight songs listed here. Again, I can't. You can't read can't all of them, can you? Here, but no. Just, just Google "Corpse Vomit" and you'll you'll get their big songs. There. Yeah, and and, and, and that was the of their first four or five um, Cannibal Corpse albums. That was the one where the titles the least offensive. And just a warning, of course, that uh, all this has been um, all very uh, good fun, a metaphorical uh, look at Antonio Conte. Don't be listening to these death metal bands, Cannibal Corpse, all the others. Um, so much of what they did was hate filled, actually. Um, misogynistic sexist so if you've got time and money to spend on music I would not start with this genre of death metal um, they just came into my head while I was uh, musing um, about the question asked by our listener now um, time constraints mean that we might not hear from Jack again on this podcast he's briefly disappeared don't think there is another fire alarm and we should end uh, Charlie by just looking we often at this stage look at the next fixture 
but I think we need to slightly peep over the garden wall a bit because we've been talking about it for months, this run of games that Spurs have got. Bournemouth are in, in decent form. In fact, I, I pronounced them dead and buried two months ago in the relegation race. I've already apologised to National Radio for that. They've, they've taken something from their, their brilliant performance against Liverpool. They've taken something from that. And they, they look like they're going to make a decent stab at staying up now and perhaps relegating a much, in theory, bigger club. But beyond that, of course, Spurs then have this titanic run of games where they go to Newcastle, are home to Manchester United, and then go to Liverpool. Bournemouth first, and then, you know, how do, then they've got this week, Charlie. How do, how, do, how do you approach three cup finals, two of them, on non-neutral grounds away from home? Yeah, well, I mean, looking at that three games, that the, the games you mentioned, Newcastle, United and Liverpool, I do fear a bit. I mean, th- those could be tough. And to use a, the line of a corpse vomit song, it could be about as pleasurable as Maggots Eating My Dick, which was <laughs> a, song a song they released in, in 1999. That's probably a single, um, no, knowing them. Yeah, that's probably... A, remember, we yeah, get that th- played on the radio, yeah. <laughs> that, that can play as we need. No, I do, I do worry about that, those three games, especially... The proximity, you know, United at home on the Thursday night and then Anfield on the Sunday, very short turnaround. They just have to beat Bournemouth, at least go into those three games with some hope. I mean, you know, I felt like if they didn't beat Brighton, especially the fact that Newcastle and United both won, they could have been cut adrift then. They did win, so they are still in it. Can they beat Bournemouth and hope that Newcastle drop points there away at Villa? So that is that is feasible. And then, you know, go to Newcastle. If, if that were to happen, then, you know, they could go to St. James's Park, either level on points or one point behind. And, and maybe, you know, we saw last year in a comparable situation, I suppose, that Arsenal, who they were competing with for fourth and didn't have much experience of it, buckled. Maybe the same thing will happen with Newcastle. They've just got to win this game against Bournemouth and... and and have a chance, but that, it's just such it's such a tough run. Those three, yeah. They, uh, I mean, I, I guess this is one of those occasions where I've forced you to look down the road. But really, um, the old football cliche of taking one game at a time could not apply more here. They need to get the three points against Bournemouth to keep the gap between themselves and the teams behind them in place, and then you know just stare into uh, look negative human beings will say into the abyss of those three upcoming fixtures. All of them look terribly difficult on paper. But, you know, a modern football manager would say, actually, stare at the opportunity this presents. Because, you know, in the unlikely event they won all three of those games, we would be just be crowing and looking forward to Champions League football next season. Yeah, the, the positive spin is that it's it's in their hands. I mean, it's not, but it kind of, it is more in the sense that at least they get to play these teams. The problem is two of those three games are away. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spurs' <laughs> away form is not good, is it? Let's be truthful. It's not good. And, and St. James's Park and Anfield are not easy places to go to. I mean, looking at Bournemouth, first of all, yeah, I mean, they that's a much harder game than one might have assumed, certainly at the start of the season. I think Bournemouth have massively exceeded expectations. They've done really well. Obviously, they came close to picking up a point or even three against the league leaders away from home a month or so ago. So, that you know, they, they do have some experience of going and, and making life difficult for, for, for a team that's expected to beat them comfortably. I think they will win that game and I hope they do because I think otherwise there is a risk that if they don't top 4 feels like it's almost gone already and there's still there's still eight games left to play seven after Bournemouth 
thank you very much indeed to Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitbrook. Charlie, we've already discussed your piece you've written about Scott Munn. You've got a, a very serious piece uh, in, the, in The Athletic coming up in the next couple of days. Yeah, this is something that runs tomorrow, Friday, ahead of the Hillsborough anniversary on Saturday. And we, The Athletic, wanted to do a series of interviews with uh, family members of people who lost their lives at Hillsborough. And I interviewed the sister and brother-in-law of it was a Spurs fan who died at Hillsborough. Who he, he was at home up in the northwest uh, for that game, and a bunch of mates offered him a ticket, so he drove them to Hillsborough. But yeah, he he was a, a Tottenham fan. Uh, Gary Mabbott was his favourite player. There's some stuff in the piece about how he used to joke about that that he you know he'd, he'd leave his girlfriend or fiance I should say um, for Gary Mabbott if he ever walked in. But yeah, I mean, I you know talking to them was an incredibly emotional experience and i yeah i mean i think it's really important to remember obviously all the 97 and i felt very privileged felt very privileged to hear their story because it's a very powerful affecting thing and i think for me i've always found hillsborough particularly relatable because i went to a lot of fa cup semi-finals as a kid with my siblings and would have gone into you know went into those days often disproportionately like the day of Hillsborough was, you know, really sunny April days. There's this feeling of renewal and opportunity and you go and you have this amazing experience. So just the idea of, you know, going through what they did and, you know, all the families and Hillsborough is such a compelling story. We, you know, we're not going to go into it now, but the way they were treated um, and victimized, it's it's quite incredible. So yeah, that will be out um, tomorrow morning, Friday morning. I'm not saying I'm looking forward to reading it, but I will read it with great interest. And of course, Spurs fans will remind you that uh, in a semi-final in the early 80s, everything that happened on that horrible day at Hillsborough was happening to Spurs fans in the self-same Leppings Lane stand, um, only it didn't end up in the tragedy. Um, and you're right, Charlie, um, it's it, all football fans. And if I ever hear any, any group of fans mocking about Hillsborough, they're a disgrace because that that could have been any one of us. To use the cliche, you know, you go to a football match and you expect to come back alive, and that could have been any single one of us. And what's followed, and as you say, it's, this is not the right place for it, has been nothing short of, not only a disgrace in and of itself, but a reflection, I think, of the way the authorities have treated football largely over the last 30, 40, 50 years um, in Britain. Uh, thank you for that. Um, thank you very much to Jack Pitbrook as well. Um, and uh, a reminder once again that if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, you really should sign up now. Um, read all of the incredible Spurs coverage as well as everything else that's on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back on Monday when hopefully Spurs will have got another three points towards that dream of Champions League football. Cheers for now. The Athletic.